This podcast is for you if you want to learn about the wonderful and wacky world of the English language and the people who speak it. If you want to learn English, speak English, and understand different speakers of English, then you're in the right place and you're going to love our podcast episode today. Welcome to English World with Chris Americos. We are a team of language lovers, expert teachers, and native speakers who are on a mission to help people around the world speak English and show the world their true value. We correct mistakes, practice pronunciation, and explore grammar rules while drinking coffee and having fun. So get comfortable, relax, grab a pen and paper, and welcome to the show. Today's episode is brought to you by English Every Day, an unlimited speaking practice program where you can join live speaking practice lessons with professional native teachers five times every day. There are a lot of courses on the internet and a lot of useful videos too, but the one thing that is missing for most English learners is practice. And if you need speaking practice, then English Every Day is for you. So click the link in the description or go to chrisamericoast.com to learn more today. All right, Sesgi, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to come and have this chat with me today. Tell us a little bit, you know, like how you got started in this space. Hi, thank you, Chris. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, so um, I started uh, basically teaching English when I was 20, when I was in college. I started teaching English um, uh, when I was 20 as a part-time English teacher back in Istanbul. Uh, back then though, my major is in translation. So I wasn't actually gonna be a teacher, but I loved the aspect of teaching and being involved with people and being involved with actually students. Then this is when I wanted to have my master's in applied linguistics in teaching. And then this is how I actually got to uh, English language teaching and you know being involved with language learners and all that, um, that has led me here today cool. in my career. So do I understand correctly that you got a master's in applied linguistics before you started teaching? Um, no, actually I started teaching in Istanbul. I started teaching at colleges and universities. So in, in Turkey, you can, not now, but like back in the day, you could just start teaching English in uh, universities and in colleges after graduating from a language related major. So what happened is because I had my major in translation, I could get a certificate in teaching. And then after that certificate, you could start teaching English as a second language. And in mm -hmm. Turkey, I started doing that. After about four years of teaching at a college in Turkey, I wanted to um, experience different cultures and different and teaching English in different countries. And that's when I started considering US for that opportunity. And what I did was I applied for a Fulbright scholarship. Uh, oh, which, wow. Yeah, which um, gives you the opportunity to come to US and teach at a college. And I applied for it. I got the Fulbright scholarship and I came to US first time in 2016 with that Fulbright scholarship. And I started teaching Turkish, actually, Turkish as a foreign language at the University of Richmond in Virginia. Uh, then I was taking master's classes at the University of Richmond. It is actually part of a requirement of the Fulbright scholarship. You're teaching, yes, but they also want you to take uh, master's level classes, like graduate level classes, and they are in uh, language teaching. Then I started uh, taking those classes and I loved how uh, diverse and how inclusive the whole class um, lesson plans were, like the topics that we were discussing in, in, at, at this, at this graduate level courses. Then I decided to have my master's degree in US based on my experience through Fulbright. Then I applied for, it, uh, for my master's at, uh, for, at the University of Alabama, and then I got in. So this is my journey until uh, the graduate school, actually. I didn't get to have my master's until after I actually had five years of teaching experience. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't know that you were a Fulbright scholar. Uh, yeah, this is actually the reason that I moved to US in the first place. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, I think that there's a lot of people out there who might listen to this who uh, would also like to do what you did. How does someone find opportunities like the Fulbright Scholarship? 
Yeah, that's actually a great question. So Fulbright offers, Fulbright is offered in almost every country, almost every country in, in the world. So uh, wherever you are from, uh, if you're listening to this podcast right now, wherever you are from, you can actually go into the website of the Fulbright of your country, in your country, and then you can find the um, scholarship that I got in, which is called FLTA, uh, Foreign Language Teaching Assistantship Program. And this is offered in many languages. And what you do is basically, once you get the scholarship, you come to US at a, they place you in a university and then you teach the language of your own. So I was a Turkish teacher at a university, but I had Fulbright um, scholar friends who were teaching Korean, who were teaching Portuguese. They were from Brazil. They were from South Korea. And you get to meet a lot of people, yeah, through Fulbright. And then you actually meet them um, once you first come to US at at an orientation. You have a four-day orientation. They teach you, they kind of give you a mini CELTA orientation. They teach you how to engage with students and how to teach a second language. They give you those workshops in those, um, in these like orientation uh, days. And you get to meet all the people from all around the world uh, that are in the same boat with you, all the Fulbright scholars. And you get to do that twice in a year. (laughs) So uh, it was the best opportunity that I ever had in my life actually changed my life for sure and then I moved to U.S. after that. So people should be out there looking for this type of scholarship this foreign language education. Yes Uh yes exactly so the uh, foreign language teaching assistantship scholarship which Uh is um, FLTA Uh, What you need is you need a degree in a language related field. So if you're a language teacher out there in your country, if you're teaching English or, uh, you know, another language that like it could be your own home language as well. If you're a language teacher, I would definitely suggest you consider this uh, scholarship because it is a it is a life-changing opportunity. And I didn't know about this scholarship um, until I actually met another Fulbright scholar. So I guess it's about um, like meeting the right people, hearing about like these experiences of Fulbright scholars, because you don't really get to see an advertisement for that, right? right. <laughs> so it was, this is how I actually got to find about uh, Fulbright scholarship. You know, your journey has taken you through these different layers of academia. And how did you decide to start a YouTube channel? Yeah, um, so I started after Fulbright, I started my um, master's degree. It was also a 100% uh, Fulbright. Um, It was 100% um, tuition waived part of an opportunity as well. So I got to teach at the University of Alabama. I got to teach academic writing to college students and um, I got to have my master's degree. So it was this amazing opportunity that again, like from Turkey, because you're once you're not um, eligible to work in the US, you know, you're not legally mm-hmm. allowed to work in the US because you're a you're from Turkey or another country, uh, those type of opportunities where you can have your master's degrees and work to, so teach for 20 hours, work 20 hours at the college and teaching, enhancing your teaching skills, all these type of things. This is one of the best uh, opportunities for language teachers out there. So I uh, found out about, again, the University of Alabama that they were they were actually providing Uh, scholarships for language teachers, I went for it and I applied. And while I was doing that, I started getting a lot of questions from all over the world, actually, about, oh, okay, we want to have, so we cannot afford um, a master's degree in US, but we would like to get the scholarship as well and to get a master's degree from a US uh, university. So this is when I started getting a lot of questions through my social media, through Twitter, through Instagram. Then I was like, okay, now I'm actually answering all these questions one by one. Why don't I create um, content and then let everyone benefit from all this information? Because I find it 
extremely useful that, you know, there are so many language teachers out there that they want to expand, um, they want to enhance their language teaching skills, and they want to get a master's degree or get Fulbright scholarship. And those are great opportunities that are provided by some governments or some universities. That's when I started my YouTube channel, because I was thinking that I could help so many other language teachers um, fulfill their dreams and, you know, uh, get better at language teaching so this well, is it how seems like you're you're really really good at finding opportunities um thank you so much for saying that um <laughs> yes i don't know if i'm good but somehow things worked out and then i could find these type of opportunities and it worked great for me <laughs> mm -hmm. so the topic of your youtube channel is that related to fulbright and teachers or or what's the content on the channel like so the content is mostly for language teachers around the world. So the all the language teachers or uh, people who want um, careers in linguistics, languages, language teaching. Uh, what I offer in my YouTube channel is that I uh, show them the universities that they can apply for uh, and those universities that give um, 100% scholarship and then that you're allowed to work as well as you know getting your master's degree so what I do is I offer them how you can get um, Fulbright scholarship how you can and the questions that are asked in the interviews for a Fulbright scholarship how can you get um, 120 out of TOEFL so what I do is basically I have one aspect in the channel where I give tips, hints, and I actually teach how to ace TOEFL because TOEFL is the most important part in those uh, applications. You need to have that. You need to have your English proficiency proven. So mm -hmm. I have TOEFL and then I have um, like university lists and what you need to apply for a master's degree on a scholarship in the US. And then I have Fulbright sections where I basically talk about all the aspects of this Fulbright scholarship, how to get it, what to do when you get here. Um, I even cover things like um, a life in the US. So what you should expect, cultural differences, all these type of things for yeah, language teachers out there, <laughs> out in the world. Very cool. And right now you are in Seattle right? Yes, correct. I'm in is Seattle. It, is it cloudy and rainy? That's the stereotype of Seattle. Um, that, is, that is very true. That's very accurate. But uh, hopefully we are in the summer right now. So the summers <laughs> are beautiful. Summers are beautiful and it is worth the gloomy weather in winter. But okay. it is generally very rainy. That's so true. That is so true. It's, it's the opposite here in Florida where the summer is just really, really hot until a hurricane comes and then it cools off a little bit but then the winter is just amazing because you can walk outside and, and it's not too hot so yeah i'm actually very jealous of florida florida winters to be honest like winters here can get really depressing <laughs> my wife always wants to see snow in the winter and she's always like let's go somewhere for snow <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, and you know what? I actually like snow as well, but Seattle does not get snow either. It's just really and rain the whole time, but I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> um, it doesn't get that much of, I mean, it doesn't get cold too much, uh, but it's quite rainy in the winter. So I'm very uh, jealous of Florida winters for <laughs> sure. Yeah, those so are some of the things I actually cover in YouTube channel as well. Like I would... <laughs> people okay like you live in florida tell me how it is like to live there <laughs> cool cool and you've lived in a lot of different places so you have a lot of experience right like where have you yeah. lived um so after istanbul turkey i lived in virginia and then mm -hmm. i lived in alabama and now in seattle and okay. it seems like in september i'll be moving to boston so it will wow. be my fourth uh, state and city and uh, in US, yes. It's just a little less gloomy, just a little. <laughs> less gloomy, definitely colder, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Snowy, for uh, sure. Yeah, I go to Boston. I have a lot of friends who live in Boston, so I go to Boston probably once a year. Um, 
How do you like it there? I, I, I like it, but again, since I, ever since I moved to Florida, now it's like when you, you've been in Florida for too long and you want to leave, you want something different. And then you go somewhere and you're like, I want to go back to Florida. <laughs> yeah, I hear that a lot. I hear that a lot. Hopefully one day uh, we'll be moving to Florida as well. We'll, <laughs> well um, what about Seattle compared to Virginia and Alabama? Did each of these places have something different, especially moving there as you know, a foreigner? So, so what was your impression of these three different places? Yeah, that's... Um... Yes, that's a very good question, actually, because I first moved to Virginia as a, as a person who has never been to U.S. before. So mm-hmm. for me, U.S. was, um, I would always think U.S. Would, more like, would be more like Europe because I was very familiar with Europe. I had some of my high school education in the U.K. Um, like I spent some time in U.K., so I knew of uh, what would the, what would vest look like right the west kind of Uh okay maybe like us is more like europe but i didn't really know about what it would be like to live in us and then i moved here and it was completely different (laughs) it wasn't wasn't anything like europe it was so what what were some of those uh, ideas that got broken when you came here i think the first thing would be uh public transportation (laughs) i was yeah i didn't think that um public transportation would be different in the U.S. than in Europe. And when I used the, used the bus, people would look at me differently. Like, oh, you're using the bus? Nobody uses the bus in Virginia. You know, that kind of thing. And I was like, okay, so this is something I shouldn't be doing. Okay, this is a cultural difference right here. Um, so what, what part of Virginia was that? It was Richmond. Richmond, Richmond. okay. Yeah, okay. Uh-huh. Um, and the public transportation was not... It, not that good uh yeah, and yeah. yeah it was completely different though i'm gonna come to that for sure but when i first you know like virginia it was completely different than what i was used to and um and uh, the family culture here actually the friendships they're very strong i really like uh, it is very it i mean i really like the culture here like the family culture and you know friends getting together people spending quality time with each other so those type of those were the things that I was um I was very happy with um because I really liked that people were actually cooking at home okay like these 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 things were really nice when I first came here and I really liked the university culture like how everyone uh contributes like how every student contributes in a class it, it is not just like a one way lecture through a professor to the students yeah. it's actually a collaborative work uh, amongst everyone this was this was definitely different compared to turkey um eastern cultures or like eastern universities they um they're known now it's changing which is great but but growing up it would be a one-way lecture so these type of things uh, that i saw in the us actually convinced me to stay here and then be a part of the academia um, and then after virginia alabama was a completely different cultural place because it is the south of us and then by the time i actually moved to alabama i knew a lot about the history i knew about the the dialects because i was majoring in linguistics so it helped me a lot to be in Alabama actually because I could observe different dialects and um, accents in in the U.S. as well like the Englishes yeah and I I really like that as well but again Alabama is um different in terms of again it's not as I I lived in Tuscaloosa it's not a city I heavily I was heavily dependent on uh my car I had to have a car and um all the students you know they need a car so these type of things were still felt like America yes this is the United States like this is the main culture and the football culture was big. I was very yeah. surprised to find out about the college football. Um, so these type of things I really enjoyed. And then I moved to Seattle, completely different. Pacific Northwest, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's definitely the opposite of Alabama and then Virginia. Uh, the, it is more of, um, I would say that because it's a city, the public transportation is here, here is big. Actually, not many people own a car um, and you have a lot of coffee shops. There is diversity in food, um, festivals, all these type of things. 
And if you want to, you know, improve yourself in anything, you have the means to do it here. There, they, they offer a lot of uh, good workshops and there are so many good museums. So yes, so uh, I would say that in the US, uh, the cities change a lot, like the culture, the Englishes, like the uh, the people. It changes. It 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 is de it definitely varies. But I love every part of it. Like I loved Alabama. I love Virginia. I love Seattle. So I actually enjoy um, being exposed to those differences and cultures. So <clears throat> I think that you're able to adapt well to these different places. You know, some people have trouble adapting, and I'm sure that in these different places, you've met the Turkish diaspora, different people who have moved from Turkey to the US, and some of them probably struggle to, to assimilate, right? And what are some of the you know cultural differences that Turkish people or Turkish speakers usually encounter in the United States? What do you think? Yeah, that's, um, yes, I actually met a lot of people who struggled. Uh, they even, I even in Seattle, I see a lot of Turkish people that are struggling because, because of the cultural differences. I think when you move to a different country, first thing you need to know is that you need to know the communication differences and cultural differences. Some of the things are not you shouldn't be offended by some of the things because it's a completely different culture. Uh, one thing that I hear from people a lot is like from Eastern cultures, not just from Turkey, but uh, from cultures that are more communal, I mm -hmm. would say, or uh, that are more indirect communicators, right? Turkey and Eastern cultures, they are, they are more indirect communicators. And for example, if you were, let's say you're a guest at someone else, someone's house, they offer you food, like something. And then sometimes in Turkish culture or in some of the Eastern cultures, it is polite to first reject the food, right? Oh, no, thank you. Just say, no, thank you. Not to seem eager to get the mm -hmm. food. Uh, but in Eastern cultures, people would be like, oh no, please take some of this. Like you have to like, please. Right, and then they right. kind of beg you to get some and then you would take one. So this is considered polite. But then you come here and if you do that in the US, people like the host will be just like, okay, because you know, the host offered you, you said, no, that's direct. So like you said, no, this is your answer. There's no hidden meaning behind it uh, for the American host, obviously, because it, because of a cultural and a communication differences. So many things like that, they would be like, oh, I, I actually was hungry the whole night. I would, I would, I would hear people say, I was hungry the whole night. They offered me food. I said no first, and then they took the food away, right? And then they were like hungry the whole night and then they couldn't eat anything because of just trying to be polite in their own culture. Yeah, yeah. I, I experienced something similar when I went to Russia. I lived yeah, there for, for eight years, I lived in Russia. And so, yeah, it was, there was a, a funny phrase that kind of summed it up for me. It was, um, in Russia, they would say that yes means yes, but no means maybe. That is and <laughs> that in the United States, uh, yes means maybe and no means no. Yes, that is very correct. And you have to actually know that to uh, adapt to the culture because then like you may get offended a lot. Like in, in Turkish culture, uh, when you go to someone else's house, they would always offer you a drink or they would, you would be always offered something like it is considered polite. And yeah. if you're, let's say you're in a class and you're eating something, you share it with other people. Again, if you're not sharing it with other people, it is considered extremely rude. But in the US, it's not like that. Like if you're eating your banana in a class, it is your banana. You don't have to share it with anyone. Or if someone, let's say, comes to your house unannounced or even just like, you know, they come to your house and you don't really have to offer them anything. It's not part of the culture. If you want to, yes, but it is not considered rude. It's just not the culture. So my Turkish friends would find it extremely offensive. They would get 
angry that how their now American friends are not offering them any food, any beverages when they're in their house yeah. or in a class, how they're not sharing their food. Like they would feel extremely um, offended and weird about it. And I would just explain, okay, those are cultural differences. They're not doing it to offend you or they're not being rude. It is a cultural differences. It's a yeah. cultural difference, just to simply put. So these type of things. And then there yeah. is- um, that's, that's, that's interesting, that point too, um, because this is something, again, with Russians, I think Russian culture is, is similar, more similar to Turkish than uh, American probably. And so a lot of the things are similar there. And- um, you know, like, yeah, every time somebody goes to someone's house, they always bring out some food and some entertainment and uh, it's being a good host. But I think the role of host and guest is different in these in different places. And that's that's something hard to understand sometimes. And and a question about Turkish, the, the language, um, when you talk about going to someone's house, how do you say that? Because like, for example, in Russian, when you go to someone's house, you say uh, like, we're going v gosti, and that means we will be a guest. Like you don't say I'm going to my friend, like in English, we say I'm going to my friend's house. We, it's, it's going, it's not something special. Like I go to the library, I go to his house, I, right? Uh, but in Russian, when you're going to the person's house to visit them, you are being a guest, you're going in as a guest. And so like, there's already this mentality of, I'm going to be a guest. That is uh, funny you said that. I didn't know that it was a thing in uh, Russia, Russian, but there's a similar saying in Turkey, Turkish as well, which is called misafirliye uh, gitmek which is, again, you go somewhere just to be a guest, like you, you go to someone's house to be exact. So when you say it is implied that you're going to this person's house and they are going to host you. So you're going to be a guest in that house. And it's a very common cultural thing in Turkey where you would find a lot of people just doing that activity as an activity. So it's an activity. So like, yes, if you, we, act, we have that too. Um, right. Which is and so, like, you know, uh, Americans will typically say that there's some kind of event or party if they plan to have this, like, guest host culture, right? Like, if they say, come to my house for my birthday party, come to my house for the Super Bowl, come to my house for Fourth of July, then, then a lot of times they will have something, right? Yeah, that is, yes. But in Tur Turkey, uh, this misafirliye gitmek, going someone's house as a guest, does not require any special event. You go there yeah. and have tea. That's it. You go there and they should have tea. Like, no way they don't have tea brewing. So they would have the Turkish tea and they would definitely offer something sweet uh, next to Turkish tea. So basically you would get something to eat and you would also get some Turkish tea. And it's a thing like that you don't, they don't require an, a special event. It's just, you are now a guest in their house. Yeah, yeah. Activity by itself. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny though, because my wife and I, we started to think about our guests, our friends in a different way. We started to understand that the people who we're not like really, really good friends with that we have to put something out. We have to do this, but with the friends who are really close with, when they come over, we're just like, oh, whatever. And we'll go to their house. They'll come to our house. No, no food, no, nothing. They can, one time they just came over and like sat at the table and started working on something for like an hour. Like they just walked in and so we're like, hey, and then just go work for an hour. And then so like to us, that's like the real friendship is when you can stop all of that stuff and you can just be real, you know? Yeah, no, I for me, it is the same. But I guess in Turkish culture, even like for your close friends, I guess if you're I mean, like between I mean, 
if you're if you're young yes but then again if you're over i don't know 40 i guess still it would be like they would still offer you something see yeah well um, but you even though you're like family i think it's just ingrained in the uh culture a lot it's just right so with the younger generation we see more westernization right that is and mm -hmm. do you think that that's a good thing or a bad thing i mean it's sometimes it's hard to separate in these days what's westernization and what's globalization right so like being connected with the world that's great but is turkey losing its culture I don't think Turkey would lose its culture because it's very deep in the Turkish blood. I will say it's just that uh, it's still there that people, you know, you see it from your mom, you see it from your grandmother, and then you know deep down that you have to offer someone something to someone is that is coming to your house. But uh, yes, um, in, in the younger generation, we could we could definitely see that there is. Um, they are more westernized in a way that, for example, in Turkish culture, potluck is not a thing. It never happens if you're going to someone's house that that person is providing all the food. But like now from time to time, I see that uh, people, you know, like potluck culture is also happening a little bit in Turkey as well, because young generation, they don't want to spend their whole day in a kitchen preparing food for let's say 10 people, but it, this is normally the case, right? Like our my mom would spend whole day in a kitchen preparing food for like 10 people that are coming to dinner. And then basically that whole day is wasted. It's gone, right? You spend it in that in that in the kitchen all day. So now I think younger people are trying to have more time to themselves. And, you know, not, they're not trying, they're, they don't want to prepare food for 10 hours to all their friends. And now they're like, they are kind of uh, taking this potluck culture, more like Western culture, where everyone brings something, right? Everyone contributes to the dinner. So mm -hmm. this is happening. And I, I think this is good. And I really like that as well, uh, because... Unfortunately, Turkey is still a patriarchal society, and generally, it's the women uh, who spends their whole day in a in a kitchen. And I think it's good that now people, like the younger generations, are more aware of this whole uh, system, and they're trying to break it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, when I think of Turkey, I think of it as like this middle ground between east and west between europe mm -hmm. and asia and africa and when i like i've never been to turkey only to the airport in istanbul but the airport in istanbul was the most international place that i've ever been in my whole life and i've been a lot of places so like that is very true that is very true. i just saw people from places that i had never thought that I would ever see a person from, you know, that's in one true. place. <laughs> yeah, that's actually very true. Um, Turkey is definitely, it is this amalgamation of West and the East, right? It is this melt, Istanbul especially is this melting pot where you can see a lot of cultures, where you can see, uh, like, where you can see people observing Islam, also people who are not, and mm -hmm. they live peacefully which is which is um perfect because you can see that turkey is some part of turkey is in europe and some part is in asia and there's the middle eastern influence as well but it is not a middle eastern country um, right. people would probably i mean like as a turkish person i consider turkey more of europe or like eurasia uh rather than uh like an Asian or a Middle Eastern country. I could never picture Turkey as a Middle Eastern country because uh, they differ in so many levels. So yes, mm. so what, what you said is very on point. Did you spend all of your life in Istanbul or you were in a different part of Turkey first? I was actually in the coastal part of Turkey called Fethiye, Mula, which is a very touristy town, which is a very, very touristy town. Uh, we would get a lot of tourists and it's 
by the Mediterranean. Um, so it's very, it's a 20 minute ferry ride to roads. So we can actually, we can see roads wow. from, uh, from where I live. So it's, it's um, the, the culture is more like Turkish, like you can have, it is Turkish, but then there's like the Greek influence on the culture as well. So this is where I'm from originally. I know that some of the southern regions of Turkey have a lot more Middle Eastern influence and that mm -hmm. maybe have more traditional population. And so how much does the culture differ from region to region? It differs quite a lot. Uh, so the coastal region, the western part of Turkey, would, I would say, would have a, like the, it's the culture is more, I guess, Western in a way, um, because it's uh, like the. I don't want to put it differently. <laughs> I don't. I, I'm trying to be careful okay. what I say, but it's um, yes. I mean, from just like an outside, I, I'm gonna observe it as an outsider now that I live in U.S. I would say it's more um, like the influence is. Like it, it has a Western influence. But then once you move towards the Southern part of Turkey, like the Eastern part of Turkey, you would see that yes, the Middle Eastern culture influence is more prominent in, in that region for sure. And then Istanbul is the mix. Um, you can, I mean, you can also see that in the elections, right? Like the, uh, Generally, the coastal region uh, votes for the left wing, and then the other parts, uh, the more, um, let's say, eastern parts, they they vote for right wing, and um, you know that the right wing. When you vote for the right wing, that you wanna um, it, like the Turkish culture and the eastern culture, you wanna keep that, you wanna preserve that more. Um, like it's a, it's conservative, uh, but the a coastal region they want to be more globalized i would say like they want to be part of europe so that's yeah it, it definitely changes a lot mm -hmm. and then you've also got a lot of other populations that call part of turkey home like kurds like kurdistan mm, yeah. mm -hmm. and so so, mm -hmm. so yeah there's a uh, so Kurdish uh, speakers in Turkey, it's the biggest minority. Although now I think with the I'm not I'm not updated on the numbers uh, of the Syrian refugees and now like Syrian Turkish citizens uh, living in Turkey, but now like the Arabic speakers are also uh, a quite a big part of Turkey. So I would say now I mean Kurdish speakers has always been a very big part of Turkey. Um, and uh, the language itself is the biggest like minority language in Turkey. But now I think Arabic is also another language that is spoken by uh, a wide um, population. Yeah. So what is the what is the point of view, the perspective that a lot of Turkish people in Turkey have, patriotic Tur Turks, let's say, have about this population of people speaking Kurdish and Arabic that are moving into uh, Turkey and, and growing? Yeah, I mean, the patriotic Turks, uh, they do not like it. And actually, like in the election process, like in the election period time, I've seen so many, so many advertisements, like so many propaganda from a lot of uh, parties in Turkey that would um talk about immigration and like the refugee crisis as the worst thing that has happened to turkey ever in the whole in the whole turkey history so there's so many people that are against um this uh, like the syrian refugees especially and and arabic signs and the language arabic language for I, I would say like for Tur Kurdish minority, yes, there are so many people still, unfortunately, to this world uh, in this day in Turkey that they do not like Kurdish speakers. They are they're not very happy with people speaking Kurdish or having their education in Kurdish. So there's so many people still in Turkey that have a problem with Kurdish speakers and Kurdish population. However, what I'm understanding right now is 
those people are now more uncomfortable with the uh, Syrian refugees and like Arabic speakers. They kind of forgot about like Kurds <laughs> in, in the country, and they are now they're more focused on uh, Arabic speakers because uh, like the Kurdish signs they were banned in Turkey, like the Kurdish oh, wow. like street uh, names, you know, like the Kurdish signs. So it was not something that tur- Turkish people would be exposed to, right? It was never an issue, but now um, for them, it was never an issue. But now like Arabic, you can see a lot of Arabic signs or like Arabic restaurant names, Arabic the Arabic all over Turkey. Now people see that a lot. They're exposed to it a lot. And they, uh, so because it's more now more visible, I guess like that part of the hate comes from that too. Uh, but I haven't been living in Turkey for the past seven years. So like what, when this whole crisis happened, I, I had already moved out and I cannot uh, even uh, now talk about like how the situation is. I mean, I visit Turkey, yes, but I cannot... Uh, really say that it's you know like I cannot really talk about the signs or all these type of things however I know that that people are very uncomfortable with it like Turkish people are very uncomfortable with it so people who are moving to Turkey or traveling to Turkey maybe not Kurdish and Arabic speakers alone but English speakers too when they go to Turkey what are some of those cultural differences that they encounter or or things that they have trouble with because I'm sure living in Istanbul, you met an English speaker or two who was stumbling his or her way through Turkey. Um, I would say like, um, I think Turkish people are very hospitable. So if you need help, they would help you immensely. They would give you their food. They would host you in their house like they would give you a bed it happens a lot actually I had a lot of American friends when I was living in Istanbul and they would they would love Turkey they would be very happy in Turkey because they were very happy with the Turkish people how friendly they are I mean now yes with the whole crisis that is happening in Turkey uh with like the Arabic speakers especially from the, from what I'm on, what I'm understanding from the articles, maybe Turkey is losing that hospitality a little bit. But um, I really want to think that they are still very helpful towards tourists and everyone else. Actually, um, so I think the cultural differences would be, you know, when you say no in Turkey, uh, if someone offers you food and you say no they're not going to accept it like you have to eat so (laughs) you might as well say yes (laughs) because you're not going to leave the table without eating their food so this is a no and they will always try to give you things like you know oh like take this take this eat this like come and stay with our place like let me help you so this is this is this is something that happens a lot and I would find my American friends being so um like suffocated because of this whole um people begging them to do things you know oh like no you have to eat that no there's no i cannot accept and no for an answer those type of things happen a lot in turkey (laughs) that's funny and so if i were just walking down the street in turkey yeah what kind of things would would stand out to me or what would be different like do a lot of people come up to you on the street and try to sell you things or Okay, yeah, that's a good point. So I think that only happens in Grand Bazaar, where, where, you know, it's very touristy. So I think it only happens in very touristy places. Although in Grand Bazaar, like the last time I visited with my American friends, they came to visit. It didn't really happen either. So I'm very pleased with that because I hate that. <laughs> I hate it. You know, uh, I don't I don't really like that. So the good thing is, no, on a street, nothing would happen no one would come nobody would come to you for sure so this is good especially in istanbul but once you are in a very touristy and a popular place and people are selling things that might happen yes so i cannot uh-huh. guarantee that that's not uh-huh. gonna happen but it does but it does not happen in in just like a normal okay. street yeah yeah only in touristy places so which is good which is which is which is good and what do you think is it safe for tourists uh, yes, for sure. It is definitely safe. I think it was not safe when all the ISIS uh, uh, like, uh, things were happening, uh, the bombings and everything, uh, like 
couple of years ago. But right now, I would, you know, ISIS gone and uh, like the, the Turkey is very safe right now. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, I spend a lot of time in Turkey when I go there, especially the coastal region nothing happens there ever <laughs> so you can just go and you know have an amazing mediterranean uh holiday by yourself and <laughs> nothing nothing would happen because so um, you can you can walk down the street with your with your cell phone out yeah for sure oh for sure like nothing will ever happen you See, can i i was in argentina recently and everyone immediately was like don't walk don't have your cell phone out and then i heard a bunch of stories of people just taking your phone running away and uh no. oh yeah. no like in turkey you will see <laughs> i mean the places that you will go like the coastal region and like istanbul people have the latest version of like iphone and then like samsung you know they it's a i guess like it's kind of i mean i guess like in turkey people like to show off with phones as well like <laughs> and things like that and with brands so that's a common thing you would see a lot of people like uh with so it's never a thing i've never heard any incident in turkey that would happen you know like <laughs> they, they would steal something from you i mean honestly from where i'm from like i uh go i walk on the street to my house around like 3 a.m in the morning nothing happens like nothing happens like it's especially very safe from where I'm from, like the coastal region. Now in Istanbul, like in the in places that are crowded, like some there are so many popular places, nothing would happen again, like around like 2 a.m. in the morning. But I cannot talk like that, like that for you know, some other uh, places that are not popular, you know, in Istanbul. But in coastal region, nothing, nothing will happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Gotta go to the coast. Got it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> go to the coast, spend some time in Istanbul, uh, still like touristy places, it's good. Uh, but then the coastal region, go to coastal region, nothing will happen. Yeah, it's very, <laughs> it's very, very safe. Let's change the topic for a second. You know, um, a lot of times names of places, we don't know kind of how we got there, but people make jokes, people say stuff about different names. How many times have you heard from an American person some kind of joke about the country Turkey? And the food turkey. Um, oh god, I had it a lot. <laughs> um, I actually okay, uh, especially not in Seattle. People are trying to be um politically correct about it. But yeah. in Alabama, I would hear so many jokes about turkey, especially in Thanksgiving. Right. Yeah. So I would hear a lot of jokes about Turkey, but the funny part is it's not the name of Turkey. I would get questions like, which would be very interesting for me because I never thought people consider Turkey that way, but I would get questions like, oh, so um, how are you liking US? I bet it's refreshing after coming from such hot climate. And I would be like, what? No, we have four seasons in Turkey. It's not a hot climate. Like, it snows and then you have the spring. No, it's not a hot, I'm not coming from a desert. <laughs> so like, I would have to explain that I'm not coming from a desert. Like they would give me that instant assumption that, you know, oh, like you must like the weather here because you're coming from a desert type of um, uh, observation. I mean, like, yeah, question. And then one time, uh, one person asked me if I would uh, ride camels in Turkey. <laughs> to school <laughs> and then i uh whoa and then i was just like oh. yeah all the kids jump on the camel it's like that's a school we, bus yeah we go to school you know take your camel to school day <laughs> we have that so it would be i i got really interesting interesting comments about turkey and questions actually i didn't get questions i would generally get assumptions and comments about like how turkey is a desert how i'm you know because they would think turkey is middle east and then i would get like camel questions hot climate questions and then like women rights questions that i was was i allowed to uh drive in my own country <laughs> type of thing or was I covered in my own country like now that I'm in the US am I not you know covered and then I had to like explain oh Turkey's a secular country no we do not have to cover no women are not covered if they want to they can they're not forced you know those type of things so yeah. 
I mean, I would get a lot of questions and assumptions. And then, yes, about turkey being the animal turkey as well. But, you know, they recently changed it. Have you, um, I don't know if you've seen it, like Turkey officially changed its name to Turkey just to get rid of that uh, animal connection. Now they changed it officially. And I see Joe Biden addressing Turkey as Turkey now. Apparently now people are going to get adapting to Turkey more. So yeah, something's happening. (laughs) Good, good. It might take a while for everyone to relearn the name. Sure, for sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I do not expect just like you know people learning Turkey. But I see, I can understand like the politics yeah. for political reasons. Uh, yeah, politicians call it Turkey now. Same with Czech Republic. I was looking at the map on Google one day, and instead of Czech Republic, it said Czechia, and I was like, well. That makes sense. That's the name, but uh, everyone calls it Czech Republic. And then I started looking and looking, and like slowly, more and more services and and programs are calling it Czechia instead of Czech Republic. So I guess it happens. Yeah, and then it's it's going to take some time to unlearn Czech Republic or Turkey, and then just to learn, you know, Czechia and Turkey. So it's yeah, it's hard for sure. Well, Sezge, thank you so much for joining me today. Tell everybody how they can find you. So they can find me on Instagram. It's G Akar. I'm pronouncing it in American. It's not actually Sezge, but I'm pronouncing it in American. Um, Sezge Akar uh, on Instagram and the same name on YouTube. You can find me on YouTube as Sezge Akar as well. Um, hope to see you on YouTube or Instagram. Awesome. And we'll put all the links under the video, under the podcast, so you can find her and you can go check out her videos and her Instagram. Thank you so much. It was it was so great talking to you. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you as well. Thanks for hosting me. Thank you for tuning in to English World with Chris Americos. Now it's your turn. Don't just listen to English, speak English with us every day. Join our English Everyday Speaking Program today. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye.